Well, folks, you're back with us once again for another episode of Campbell's Footballs. Yes, a warm welcome to Campbell's Footballs, the only podcast where bad predictions are cancelled out by good crack. This week I'm joined by a very special guest from the world of football commentary. This man has represented the commentary box at many different tournaments, including the 94 World Cup, Euro 2016 in France, as well as commentated every week in leagues in Scotland, Germany and France. Yes, I'm joined this week by Derek Ray and I'm really excited to chat to Derek about his career which has spanned over the course of three decades or more. I'll also be chatting to Derek about advice he gives to young young ladies and gents who are keen to take up football commentary going forward and ask him about his fantastic memories and also selling football. This of course is Campbell's Football's the only podcast where bad predictions are cancelled out by good crack which is, as always, in association with Toby Johnson Music. So I'm joined for this episode of my Campbell's Football podcast by the legend uh, broadcaster, that is Derek Ray. Derek, a warm welcome to the show. Very nice to be with you, Grant. Um, I just want to kick off, Derek, by um, wanting you to give a little bit more of a background as to how you got into broadcasting and, and football, more importantly. Well, it's a long story. Do you have a few minutes? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I was very young when I began. And when I say very young, I started making tapes of myself commentating on games in 1974 when the World Cup was on in West Germany as it was. Hmm. And we had just purchased our very first stereo cassette recorder. Now, to anybody (laughs) of a younger generation, they'll probably ask, what on earth is a stereo cassette recorder? But that was quite the innovation at the time. And I was very excited as somebody who was quite keen on football on television, very excited to experiment with it. And I did it during the World Cup Games in 1974. I was seven years of age at the time. So I realized, I think, at that age that this is something I wanted to explore. And I kept doing it uh, in the years after that. And finally plucked up the courage at the age of around 11, 10, 11 to take my small tape recorder to Petodre, the local stadium in Aberdeen, and this was for reserve games. So I'd make my own commentaries, I would talk to myself essentially for 90 minutes, and I know I got a lot of very strange looks from my hardened <laughs> fans around me. Um, and in fact, one of them came up to me and said, he said in his Aberdonian accent, you're Don Loon that speaks to himself for 90 minutes. Is that right? And I said, yeah, I am. He said, and he said what's wrong with you, man? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Um, but I kind of had a plan with it 
alcohol because even at that young age, I think I figured out that this is what I wanted to do and that I needed practical experience. And this was the only way to get it, or so I thought. But um, I sent my tapes away to my hero, and my broadcasting hero at that time was David Francie, who Absolute was the voice of uh-huh. football on Radio Scotland. Yeah. And I wrote to him at the BBC, not necessarily thinking I would get a reply, but lo and behold, three weeks later, this beautifully handwritten letter arrived at our home in Aberdeen, and I must have read it about a hundred times. I must have just looked at it again and again because I couldn't believe that my hero had written back to me Yeah, and he offered some wonderful advice uh, gave me some great encouragement said he enjoyed what I put on tape keep working away gave me some tips that he used on the air and off the air uh, to make his commentaries better and encouraged me to get involved with hospital radio in Aberdeen which right. I did mm-hmm. and um, worked as a volunteer for Grampian Hospital Radio for several years and really enjoyed it and it got me to Petaudry to commentate on games for patients in hospital. If anybody doesn't know about hospital radio, it's still alive and kicking and it is a great service for listeners who are stuck in hospital and it does allow fledgling broadcasters to get more experience. So I did that all the way up until when I was at university in Aberdeen and uh, for some reason I decided I was going to send a tape to David again. And, and I did it. Now, this time, he didn't reply to me directly. What he did was, and this was very kind of him, and I've always been very grateful, he passed it on to his bosses at Radio Scotland. And mm-hmm. I got a call from one of them, and he wrote back saying, I really like what I hear on this tape. Could you come down to Glasgow sometime and have a chat? And to cut a long story short, I got my start on the air at Radio Scotland in the April of 1986. And I got my first commentary shortly after my first game as a reporter. First commentary was Kilmarnock against Dumbarton. And then um, I went back to Aberdeen, still a student, studying German and politics, loved my studies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Got a call that night saying, really well done. Um, How about for your second game, England against Scotland at Wembley this midweek? Wow. And that was my second game on the air. Amazing. And so that's how it started. You know, very unorthodox, you'd have to say. Super. I don't think I really believed what was going on at the time. I was just commentating. I, I wasn't thinking too much about it. When you're that age, you know, when you're, you're 19, as I was, yeah. you don't necessarily take it all in. You just sort of do it. And I see this with young footballers all the time as well. They don't look nervous the way sometimes a more harder professional can be nervous yeah. because he realises more what's on the line. You're just Mm -hmm. going with the flow. What would be your preparations for big games? Would you spend... You know, quite a long time actually looking at the statistics or, you know, doing a lot of advanced research on the players like some people do. I mean, I was speaking to Guy Mowbray um, earlier on for a podcast and I noticed that if he hadn't followed a team for quite a number of weeks or something, he would play a quick game of FIFA to get up to speed with some of the players, for instance. Well, uh, as somebody who is uh, a commentator on the FIFA game, maybe I should should start doing that. Um, See what I did there? (laughs) Yeah, I've never actually done that, but I I actually am one of the commentators on uh, FIFA 20 as I was on FIFA 19, but that might be too much of my own voice for me to take in in one film, so so, so maybe not. Um, But no, what I tend to do is I just start scribbling, and once I get my assignment, which can often be several weeks in advance, 
I just put it all down on a bit of paper and I color code everything. I've done that from day one. So if I were broadcasting, say, um, say it were a Scottish game and say it were Aberdeen and Celtic, all my Aberdeen notes would be in red, all my Celtic notes would be in green. And I've taken a lot of these techniques from my language studies as a, a student of German. And um, th there's certainly a lot of evidence to suggest that uh, most people have photographic memory, so that if you write something down carefully and you know where it is on a page, that sticks in your memory. You remember uh, in your mind where everything was on that page. So that's what I do, and I go through uh, newspaper articles, websites. Uh, I do that for, for days on end, really. So it can be an hour here, an hour there. But if you were to add it all together, it would be several days of research into every commentary and I don't think most viewers realize that I think a lot of people suspect that we just sort of turn up and we talk but um, you know that would certainly not work in, in most cases yeah anyway. yeah um, so uh, so there's that and then nowadays as well there's there's the watching players because the first thing I always ask myself is can I identify them and by that I mean can I identify them without seeing their numbers so do I know what their, their hairstyles are I look, to be honest, at patterns with book colours so that I was doing, uh, nice. just a few days ago, I was actually back in the UK, I was in England covering Wolves and West Ham. So I went back over a few Wolves games, had a look at what book colours the players had been wearing. No guarantee that they'll still wear the same book colours on match night, but there's a good chance if they have done for two or three games in a row, they'll continue that pattern. And, and so it's all part of the becoming intimate with the players in your mind, yeah. knowing what they look like. Um, statistics, yes, are part of it, but I prefer to say notes rather than statistics because numbers are part of it, yeah. but it's also about stories, and you can't really make a good story about a player that perhaps nobody has uncovered on the air before. Yeah. The numbers are important, um, but not necessarily at every turn. Yeah. Let's go back and talk about England against Scotland. Describe your emotions when you were given that opportunity to commentate at such a big match like that so early in your career. Well, I was very excited, as you can imagine, and I jumped on the plane to London. I was going to be working with John Gregg, who I had met for the first time the previous Saturday. He had been my co-commentator at Rugby Bar. I didn't yeah. suspect at the time that it was an audition for Wembley, but that's in effect what it turned out to be. And there were actually three of us, so it was John Gregg, uh, myself, and Mike Ingham, who many will know from years as one of the great voices of English football on the radio. So in those days you did 22 and a half minutes each and then handed over to the other commentator. That was the pattern on most of the BBC radio stations. So I did the first 22 and a half minutes yeah. and, then, um, and then passed over to, to Mike for the, the next bit and John was our summariser. So it was just a, an experience that was a bit of a whirlwind for me. It, it all um, happened in a blink of an eye and then, having done the game, which unfortunately Scotland lost by two goals to one, Graham Souness did score from the spot, but uh, they were down 2-0 prior to that, and never really got in the game. It was a, a bit of a warm-up for the World Cup in Mexico that year, but it was still England against Scotland, mm -hmm. and you know, I never imagined in my wildest dreams that I would get to broadcast an England-Scotland game, let alone at the age of 19, my second professional match on the air. Yeah. But that's how it turned out, and then... 
Um, no sooner were we off the air than I got a call from the BBC producer of Breakfast Time, which was the, the morning programme then. Frank Boff was the presenter, and they wanted me to stay over. Could I stay over and, and be on Breakfast Time the next morning as one of the guests? Mm-hmm. So, again, this was not, not anything you could really prepare for at 19. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, there was this period where... Um, the people at BBC Scotland said to me, you know, we really do like your work. We'd like to stay uh, involved with you and we hope that you'd like to be part of our team. And they said, would you be interested in coming to work uh, during the summer with us in Glasgow? Yeah. So I did that and again got a lot more experience. And then pretty soon after that, it became, well, would you like to, to come and work here full time? And I sort of hesitated about that because I did love my studies, as I said earlier. I was a very keen student of German language yeah. and also of, of international relations and politics. And I was reluctant to give it up. But at the same time, in this business, and you'll hear every commentator say this, in our business, you don't want to say no. Exactly. You don't want to turn down You know what was, to me, a, a, an offer of a lifetime. Yeah. I mean, this is what I had always been dreaming of, to, to be a commentator for BBC Scotland. And yeah. this was being offered to me. Um, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, maybe somebody could have suggested and maybe I could have been more um, pushing in this direction, switching from Aberdeen University to Glasgow and combining both. But I, I didn't think about it at the time. Yeah. I didn't, you know, I just thought, here's this chance to, uh, to be on the air and to work for the BBC. And in my five years there, I got to do the lot. I mean, I got to to travel to 19 different countries covering predominantly Scottish teams who yeah. obviously were, were quite good at European football yeah. back then. I guess yeah. that might be a surprise to, to younger uh, <laughs> listeners. And uh, and also got to do quite a bit of television, which yeah. had not been really something I had thought about as a younger person. I was very much a radio guy. Yeah. Uh, I loved listening to the radio. I had it on all the time. But uh, as I got more and more into television, I realised that... Um, that I quite liked it and I enjoyed the very different discipline of TV mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to radio. Yeah, it's quite amazing just seeing your connections there with your studies and your career because, you know, I've I've always loved football growing up and, you know, I thought maybe in my, my, in my own weird mind kind of growing up, I thought I might go into the sort of journalistic field but I had a real interest in geography and the environment and like yourself, I was a student at Aberdeen University and I did my PhD at Cranfield just recently which I graduated this year and I, I still feel that is the main part of my life but I still love and absorb football on a daily basis and it really is fantastic just to have someone very similar kind of okay in a different um, kind of obviously yours is languages but I think it's quite interesting to see the similarities uh, from yourself and I just just chatting about that it's quite fantastic now Derek you've spoken on and commented on at some massive major tournaments chat a little bit about World Cups I'll keep it quite wide <laughs> Yeah, well, I've been very lucky with World Cups. I got my first one uh, under my belt in 1990. I had joined the BBC too late for 86 in Mexico, but 1990 in Italy was um, a brilliant experience from the point of view of being there. Now, the tournament itself was not a great tournament. I think we can all say that with the benefit of hindsight. It was a very defensive tournament. It was ugly in parts. Uh, It was not one that really captured the imagination from a football point of view, but there's still a sort of a romanticism attached to it amongst people in the UK, and I often wonder if that has to do with BBC's coverage and Pavarotti and and the whole sort of Italian um, feeling that was was pervasive. There's no doubt about that. And, of course, that really was the 
um, the launch pad for what Channel 4 did with Italian club football in yeah. the years after that. Yeah. But um, that was a very important World Cup for me career-wise because it was at that World Cup that I made some very significant contacts. And I'm talking here about the people who were to be running the 1994 World Cup in the United States. Mm. Now, I had always had a real interest in the U.S., and specifically this World Cup and how they were going to handle it because the US back then was very different um, than the US now from a football point of view. It was not really a football country on the same level um, that it's become. I mean, young people now are immersed in the game in a way that just wasn't the case back in the early 1990s. So I made these contacts and I sort of filed that away and uh, it, I had been thinking about this because I've been at the BBC for, for several years, even though I was still very young. But when you're young, you can be restless. And I was a bit restless. And I vowed to go and live in the USA. And I did that. So I gave up my BBC career after five years. Mm -hmm. Most people thought I was mm -hmm. absolutely crazy. But I just felt that I had done everything I, I had immediately or initially wanted to do. And the next challenge was in America. So I, I went to the US initially enrolled at a local college because I wanted to uh, understand America from a journalistic broadcasting point of view. I gave myself a few months to do that and that was lucky enough to get a green card and I got that through an award I had won, the, the British Sports Broadcaster of the Year Award, the Sony Award, just one year into my time at the BBC yeah. and when I was given that award I thought well this is just somebody taking, you know, be, be being sympathetic to a young broadcaster and sort of the novelty value, but um, but I won that award and I was able to, to, to put that to, to very good use. And um, so I was I was in the US, in Boston, where I'm talking to you from now, which yeah. has really been my home, you know, for most of my adult life, yeah. uh, on and off, but, but, you know, most of my years have been spent in the Boston area. And... Um, Again, to cut a long story short, I was hired as the press officer for the World Cup in 1994 mm -hmm. and in Boston. Yeah. And again, that gave me a tremendous insight into how things were done media-wise, also into having the responsibility of running a media operation, which uh, I can tell you some people might think is, is easy, it's not. Um, but uh, I loved every minute of that, and I'm very grateful to, to Jim Trecker, who was the head of media for the 1994 World Cup, one of the, the best bosses I've, I've ever had and ever will have uh, for the, the faith he had in me. Yeah. And so I did that all the way through the 94 World Cup. It was really effectively a, a, a one and a half year lead up to that. Uh, and then pretty much ever since it's been back broadcasting. So 1990 was for radio, um, the Italy World Cup. 94 was on site as press officer uh, for that World Cup. And then... Um, Every other one has been for one TV channel as another, most of them for ESPN, which has been my broadcasting home for a big chunk of my, my, my life. Yeah. Um, but the last one, the most recent one in Russia was for Fox, who yeah. had the rights. Uh, and that was a great experience as well. So they've all been different. It's hard to say which one has been my favorite. That was my next question, actually. Yeah. What, what is your favorite? Or do you have one? I think it would be very different things to utilise in, in different media, I would say. But my point would be just an outsider looking in. Well, I, I think 94 will always be special for me because of the role I had. Because when you're the, the, the media officer uh, for, a venue, uh, for a venue and working with FIFA, uh, you, know, you, you do see things that you're never going to see as a journalist or a broadcaster. You have access to the inner sanctum 
all part of doing a job, of course. So that one is always going to be, going to be special because of you know what it meant in the USA. I think that the last, the most recent one that I've done, um, certainly hope it's not the last one, but the most recent one in Russia, I think from the football point of view, might have actually been the best. That might have been yep. the, the most fluent football tournament I've covered. But, um, you know, I have a soft spot for 2006 in Germany because um, that is where I still spend a lot of my time as somebody who, um, who loves speaking German and, mm. and loves the country and has tremendous um, connections with uh, with Germany. So, so that one would be high on my list as well. But it would be games here and games there and, and some games stand out more than others. I've just been very privileged, Grant, to, to have been asked to, to cover so many World Cups from the point of view of, as I said, radio, um, being a media officer and uh, predominantly TV. It's fantastic just hearing about that. I just I just feel so jealous of not being a part of it. I'd, I'd love to someday just be at a World Cup or, or a European Championship. It really would be fantastic. And to just hear that is just absolutely fantastic. Let's bring it a little bit closer to home. Um, because in 2009, uh, you were hired as the league commentator for the Scottish Premier League matches on ESPN. Give me a little bit of your thoughts on Scottish football then and where it is at this moment. Well, let's go back to 2009. What had happened there was the Champions League, which had been my bread and butter for ESPN in the USA. I was a league commentator for the Champions League, and uh, we had just done the final in Rome between Barcelona and Manchester United. And things happened in a hurry that summer because Satanta very suddenly uh, hit financial problems and had to forfeit their rights to Scottish football. Yeah. And it turns out that not just their rights to Scottish football, but to the Premier League in England as well. So ESPN, which had been monitoring what was going on in the market, um, stepped in and, if you like, saved the day, picked up the contract that Satanta had had to forfeit and very hastily had to put together a team to cover the matches. So not long after that Champions League final in Rome, I got a call and it was along the lines of, you know, we know that you still have connections of the UK market, specifically Scotland, would it interest you to go back and be the league commentator, our league commentator, for the 30 games that we are now contracted to show? And as it turned out, it really struck a chord with what I was interested in at that time, because uh, the Champions League rights having been lost to Fox, I was at a bit of a crossroads. I could have continued doing what I was doing. But the chance to go back and, and work in the market and you know be at the coal face, if you like, was something I didn't want to turn down. And it was very much like going back in time because I had said goodbye to Scotland in 1991, goodbye to Scottish football. I had been broadcasting it on and off since because ESPN did have rights internationally mm. for the games for a spell uh, and they were done off tube in Connecticut. But this was a chance to go back and, and really be part of the scene again in Scotland and try to put my own stamp on it. And, uh, you know, I've always believed in myself as a commentator, as you have to do, and I thought, I can go back there and I can I can do something that, that maybe hasn't been done before in terms of the sound of it, and, and hopefully people will like it, and we'll find out. And Listen, if I don't do it, we're never going to find out. So, um, so we did this for one year. It was a one-year kind of, not a trial as such, but I was still flying back and forth every week pretty much and mm. had duties in, in the States. That was exhausting, and I think we both realised that wasn't sustainable, so... 
uh, I went back permanently in, in 2010 and did that with ESPN until um, their contract ran out and the UK channel fell by the wayside. But then BT Sport stepped in and I was the commentator for BT Sport for the first four years of their existence covering Scottish football and other things. Um, that's a long-winded answer and I didn't even get to the main part about the differences. So in 2009, I think that Scotland was still kind of in shock after what had happened with Bosman and its aftermath and playing silly games with overspending for players and really trying to copy England and it was sort of getting away from that a little bit. I think most clubs realised they had to live within their means. It was no longer doable to just spend and worry about it tomorrow and have a huge amount of debt. And obviously the Rangers story was a huge story at that particular time. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people fell out, fell out of love with Scottish football around that time. Mm. I, I think that they, they weren't quite sure where it was going. But you could see that there was a way back. And I've always believed that. And I did believe it at the time. And I think we saw that way back come slowly but surely as people rallied around and realised that, you know, we can love our own football and we must love our own football and it doesn't really matter whether teams are spending a lot of money or a little money. Mm. And one thing I must tell you that I really enjoyed during that period, and people will, you know, maybe sort of furrow their brows when I say this, what I enjoyed was covering the games in the lower divisions involving Rangers. Yeah. And the reason why I enjoyed those games, less to do with Rangers, more to do with the fact that as a commentator, it gave me the chance to tell the story of clubs whose stories are rarely told. Absolutely agree um, with that. So, so I relished going to Brechin. I loved going to East Fife, going to Annan, yeah. going to Berwick, going to all these places that you know people see these teams on a scoreboard, on the internet, on television every week, but they never really think much about the rich stories that they have. And it's the one thing that I really wanted to do when I went back to Scotland. You know, I, we all know about Celtic and Rangers. We all know how big they are. We all know how many fans they have. But what I wanted to do was put the emphasis on teams who don't get the coverage. And every club has a story. But I do feel in Scotland we are too Glasgow-centric. We are too club-centric. And again, it's understandable because that's where the interest is in terms of fans. But that doesn't mean that you can't tell the, the story properly of these other clubs. Do it in an interesting way and get more interest based on that. I mean, that's the only way you do it as a commentator. If you're a marketing person, you'll agree with that as well. Mm -hmm. Unless you shine a light on something, people will not be interested. If you just talk about the same things all the time, Eventually, a lot of people are going to fall away and say, no, I've heard that over and over and over again. Yeah. So, eight years back in Scotland, by the end of it, I think Scottish football was in a, a better place. I think it's in an even better place now as we speak. Yeah. Um, this would be two and a half years on from, from my departure. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that the fact remains that in Scotland we have a higher percentage of the population attending games than in any other country. Granted, mm -hmm. a lot of that has to do with Celtic and Rangers. We'd never deny that. But you can't just make it about two clubs. Yeah. If we do, if we think that that's the only way to talk about Scottish football, then 
it's not going to go anywhere. No, I fully agree. And I think, certainly from a Scottish football point of view, the, I, I believe that the, the top flight needs a very strong two Edinburgh clubs and Hibs and Hearts. You know, you've seen Aberdeen under Derry McInnes, you know, consistently been pushing Celtic over the years when Rangers were outside the divisions. You have other teams that have really punched above their weight, like Motherwell and St Johnston and vast winning, winning trophies and getting to cup finals. And I think you're absolutely right. I do think Scottish football certainly has uh, improved a lot in recent times but I also think not only is that down to the clubs themselves but also down to media coverage as well and I, I really think that BT Sport really did a really good job in taking the, the baton of Scottish football along with Sky Sports uh, and really produced a, a greater model for our game I believe so anyway Well I'm glad to hear you say that because I, I vividly recall the impromptu meeting we all had when the BT Sport coverage started and the executive producer was a guy called Grant Phillips who's still very heavily involved at the forefront with BT Sport Daryl Curry, the presenter, who's one of my best friends um, Gary McAllister, who was to be my co-commentator uh, and, and, and I, obviously, as, as the, the, the match commentator had a lot to say about it as well but we all met and we all agreed on one thing that the people who like Scottish football love Scottish football but for some reason, a lot of the coverage, and this had certainly struck me, a lot of the coverage was quite negative. Yeah, was no, I fully agree. On, a lot of negativity on television about it and, and talking things down. And, and my point was, um, okay, we can still be honest, but we can talk it up. Mm -hmm. you know, we can be enthusiastic about it. Yeah, no, I fully and, agree. You know, I took on board a lot of what I had seen in the United States. And, um, for example, college football in the United States. The people who love college football... They are absolutely passionate about it, and it's a little cottage industry in itself. And I, I, I'm never quite sure where this came from, this idea that, you know, knock Scottish football. And uh, I was of the firm belief that if we put our own stamp on it, if we talk to Scots as Scots about the thing that we all really believe in and that we all want to be part of, then it's bound to strike a chord yeah. and obviously it, it you know, can take different forms and you've got to have it refined in a broadcasting sense as well mm. but uh, you know four very memorable years I mentioned Gary McAllister there Gary then left us and Chris Sutton was my, my main partner for for uh, the, the, the latter part of my time there too and the same thing you know Chris is not Scottish but he understood enough about Scottish fans that they were passionate yeah. and um, you know talk to them from the point of view of, of somebody who is immersed in Scottish football and it should pay dividends. I think, well you mentioned Chris Sutton there, and what I love about himself and Stephen Cragen, Michael Stewart, Ali McCoyst and that, they really do talk up Scottish football and I really love that and I really love watching BT Sports coverage, I love the, the banter that they have with one another and, and don't get me wrong, some of it is a little bit of a, a kind of um, arm ribbon and things like that but it, it's, it's all tongue in cheek and I think it's fantastic and I think that's what Scottish football needs. We see it on Sky Sports with Chris Commons and Chris Boyd and that as well and I think we should be celebrating this rather than knocking it. I fully agree with you on that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, things come in stages and there are, there are phases of, of different styles and that is all part of broadcasting. But, you know, that was very important. I think the message that was sent from the start uh, on BT Sport that, um, you know, we're all Scottish. Um, we love this sport. We love our football. And we want to bring it to you in that way. Doesn't yeah. mean that we can't be critical. 
It doesn't mean that there won't you know, be negative words occasionally, but the tone shouldn't be negative. And I remember the first game we did on BT Sport was Partick Thistle against Dundee United. Mm-hmm. And Grant and, uh, and Martin Keegan, the producer, came up with the idea that, you know, we should, why don't we just try and get every manager we can to come to that game? We'll get them there, you know, we'll get a car to get them there. And let's just spend an hour and a half talking to them, you know, and let's move around and let's have a dynamic kind of feel to the whole thing. And remember on the first night, we got a terrific response. People say, this has never been done. And then I was thinking to myself, why has it never been done? You know, but why are we so limited in our, mm. our scope? So, um, you know, and now if you watch that style of broadcast, it's sort of de rigueur now. It, it's, it's the way that I think most people aspire to to do it. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, you know, really honoured to have been part of of that spell but now uh, Rory Hamilton who succeeded me as commentator is a fabulous young commentator uh, he's maybe not that young but he's younger than I am everybody's younger than yeah. I am I think nowadays um, and uh, you know it's, it's been great to, to see him go from strength to strength in the commentary box as well yeah and you've also got Ron McLean who's doing a very good job on the European stage as well for, for, for Scottish football with commentating on some Rangers games well I've, I've known Rob well I've, I've kind of grown up really loving Rob's commentary he was one of my sort of Scottish heroes coming up and I'm hopefully went to get him on my own podcast in the future so he'd be really good to chat to you. Uh, in terms of number twos alongside you in the commentary box Derek who kind of stands out as your go-to guys to say I loved working with him the best oh that's such a difficult question because I've been lucky enough to work with so many wonderful co-commentators and they all bring something very different to the table yeah I mean sentimentally I, I go back to John Gregg who was my very first co-commentator and he was a bit like a, a father figure to me because I was 19 at the time and I learned an awful lot about the inner workings of Scottish football just being around John because he was so highly respected he had been obviously the Rangers captain and then the Rangers manager and it wasn't long after that that I was sitting with him in commentary uh, boxes or commentary gantries up and down Scotland and so you know he'll always have a, a special place in my heart to be honest yeah um, just based on what I learned from him and then if you go down the list I mean I don't want to leave anybody out because there, there, there've been so many of them but uh, Craig Burley I would have to give real credit to because he was my co-commentator when I came back to Scotland 2009 with ESPN Craig had been with Satanta prior yep. to that um, we didn't know each other particularly well but we got on with each other very well and uh, you know Craig was sort of you know maybe the um, the yin to my yang you know I, I was maybe a bit more positive Craig would be more likely to kind of be critical but I think sometimes you need that in a partnership yeah. and so I very much enjoyed that partnership I'd have to mention Andy Gray as well who was my partner during the, uh, the Euros of 2008 for ESPN and uh, there aren't many who have quite the, the quick eye that Andy Gray has and uh He's on top of absolutely everything yeah. and I, I think revolutionised in many respects the role of co-commentator. Definitely so agree. full credit to him. Um, Gary McAllister, who I mentioned, I think Gary was the right choice for BT Sport when they started. I think mm-hmm. that he was a very respected figure who hadn't spent that much time in Scotland, but of course everybody in Scotland knew him. And he came into it much like I did in 2009 with a fresh perspective, which I think is sometimes important. Mm. I remember I, I did a few interviews with journalists ahead of the 2009 debut on ESPN. And they said, what do you think you bring? I said, well, I think I bring a fresh pair of eyes um, because I haven't been part of the scene for the best part of 20 years. I've been following it, but I'm not necessarily 
in with the, the bricks. So I come mm. at it hopefully with some different comments and able to see it slightly differently. I think Gary was the same from the co-commentary point of view in 2013. And Chris Sutton, who uh, again is, has got his own style, but um, was able to put his stamp on things in the commentary box. And I very much enjoyed my time with Chris working with him too and I would be very remiss if I didn't mention and, and this name is probably not well known to, to people of the UK but if I didn't mention a guy called Tommy Smith because um, Tommy Smith is an Irish broadcaster based in New York has been based in New York for many many years and I worked with Tommy on the Champions League for a long time he's not an orthodox football broadcaster he wouldn't want to be described as that either he's a personality but he's, he's one of the best broadcasters I've ever worked with I yeah. have to say that because he's so quick on his feet, he always has a quip, um, and these days I work with Tommy on the NFL, we do an NFL broadcast every Thursday mm. for uh, Prime Video, and um, I've just been doing that this past Thursday, having flown back from, from England that same day, went straight on the air and did the NFL with Tommy, so, Amazing. Um, so yeah, Tommy deserves a lot of credit too, and uh, He's a bit of a polarizing figure, which yep. is no bad thing in a broadcaster, but I will always give him very high marks for his ability to think quickly and to, to make people react to what he says. I'm sure a lot of people will be Googling Tommy's name as we're listening to this podcast back. It will be fantastic. Um, you've obviously worked in Scotland, but you've also been commenting on loads of other leagues like the Bundesliga in Germany and Liga in France, and obviously, laterally, the um, American League. What, what, what do you think about these different leagues? I mean, obviously they offer something different, but any sort of perks working with these leagues or of interest? Um, I don't know about perks. I, I, I don't know too much about perks because I'm not really somebody that ever um, goes in search of things like that. Yeah. I, what I would say to you, though, is that the Bundesliga is very, very dear to my heart, and yeah. it has been since my very first Bundesliga game as a fan mm. uh, while I was a, a student back in 1985 and since then it has always been part of me and I'm very lucky to still work in Germany quite a lot I tend to go every few weeks for about a week at a time and I'm able to then cover two match days and, and broadcast normally four games for the Bundesliga's world feed um, so a world feed is a, a commentary that goes as it says, around the world, and, and in many cases people don't know they're listening to a world feed, but it's uh, so that broadcasters who have rights to a particular league or particular event have English language commentary as part of the package. So I still do that, and, and I do it with great pride and with great love, and um, what I particularly enjoy about German football is the culture, the passion around it. I yeah. think it is unmatched. I always, people often ask me here in America, They'll ask me, you know, where should I go uh, for my first game in Europe? And without hesitation, I say Germany. Because yeah. I do think that from the fans' point of view, from the fan experience point of view, um, it cannot be topped. And yeah. a lot of that has to do with the ticket prices, the accessibility. I mean, I was in Mainz watching the game just on the, the terraces this past Monday, Mainz against Frankfurt, and I paid 15 euros to stand, and uh, it was... Tremendous, just yeah. as it always is, and that includes transport, local transport to the game and back to wherever you you came from after the game too. And um, I just think it works on so many different levels, and it's no accident that Germany attracts the largest crowds 
in Europe to yeah. its first division and in recent years to its second division as well so that would always be the one that you know and I, I accept that I'm a little bit biased when it comes to it because it, it plays <laughs> to my interest in, in German culture and language and, and just pure love of the country but um, the leagues are all different and, and I got my first um, start at ESPN covering the Brazilian league believe it or not back in the early 1990s or this would be 94 after the, the World Cup was over that was the first assignment I was handed and I knew nothing about Brazilian football but very quickly read up and having a bit of a languages background was handy because mm. I, I, I don't speak Portuguese but as you know Portuguese is um, is linked with Spanish and Italian and even French in terms of the root of the language yeah. so I, I was able to, to read a lot of newspaper articles and, and try to catch up quite quickly with it and uh, really enjoyed my time covering the, the Brazilian league at that sort of stage when you had players like Roberto Carlos and Edmundo uh, and Savio all playing the club football in Brazil it wasn't a given that these players would go to Europe at a very young age yeah. back then and um, from there we moved to Dutch football so I, I did a, a few years covering the Eredivisie for ESPN and um, Spanish football was something that was, was right um, at the, the forefront of my career for a few years Scottish football too as I mentioned mm -hmm. did some of that off tube yeah. the Spanish years were great Serie A also about my my years it's sort of almost fallen into little blocks yeah. for me in terms of what I've covered so it started with Scottish football and moved on to Brazilian football, Dutch football, um, Italian, Spanish, again a little bit with Scottish, Champions League which was the main thing, yeah. that working in Scotland a lot, but even when I was working for ESPN UK and BT Sport I was still covering the Bundesliga, that was the one constant throughout it. Um, and you know the variety for me is something that's always been very important yeah. I, I mentioned earlier the word restless I've always been a bit restless and a little bit impatient yeah. and, and I think it's why I you know one of the reasons why we made the decision to return to the USA in 2017 was just that I wanted a little bit more variety I felt I had done everything that I wanted to do in Scotland I had spent eight years but didn't necessarily see myself being there forever and uh, as I say home had from an adult point of view perspective it always really been here in the Boston area and by being freelance here uh, I can bounce around and you know my life nowadays is uh, some German football some Premier League football for NBC and also for Prime Video now that they're mm. in the market the FIFA 20 video game for EA Sports which um, is something that's become really important to yeah. me to I need to here. buy it <laughs> it's something that's, that's just great fun to do yeah it's uh, you know we go into a studio Lee Dixon and I and, and, and it's 25 days or has been in a studio the last couple of years and it's hard work vocally it's, I was going to say what's that like because you know we I, you know, I love playing FIFA and when I play it it don't really kind of kind of take into account you know the amount of hours it would take because obviously in the past it's evolved from one of the very first FIFAs I bought was I think 2003 it was like I think it was John Motson and Ali McCoist were the, the commentary team and then it's evolved to Clive Tilsley and Andy Townsend and you know it's kept evolving and then obviously now it, it recently it's yourself and Lee Dix I mean what is that like because I think a few people listening to this would be very interested to know about it well essentially we're in a studio for several hours at a time and sometimes together, sometimes um, apart, and it's just a matter of going through a, a lot of content, and obviously from the commentary point of view, a lot of it is um, names, and yeah. names with different inflections, so you have you know, base inflections when a player is in possession, you have a different inflection when uh, maybe he's about to carve something out, you have another inflection when it's a, a shot on goal, another one for a goal itself, 
and that's what we do. And, yes. Um, what you've got to remember is that, and I think this is the one thing that, again, would surprise people, I'm not seeing anything when I'm doing this. Right. I'm not seeing the action in front of me. I'm not seeing an example of any of it. I've simply got to put into words what I would organically do in a game and try and make it as realistic as possible. Is that, easier, right. or, is that easier or harder to envisage? Well, it's not necessarily hard to envisage, but it's hard to, to replicate it to the standard you would want to over and over and over again. And that's mm. why we have to sort of put a cap on how long we, we do these sessions every day. Because if you can imagine, uh, you know, in, in the course of a game, I might get very excited about an amazing moment, but it might just happen once. But yeah. If we're doing it for the game, I might have to do that, you know, 50 times in a row. Yeah. And you can imagine after the 50th time, the voice quality is... Uh, it's taking a little bit of a knock. Yeah. So, um, so, so we have to be very mindful of that, and, and thankfully our producers, our, our, our team, are brilliant at that, and, and they monitor that to make sure that, you know, come the next day, that the voice quality is going to be there for another session. Yeah. But it's, um, it's really been just a fabulous um, experience, yeah. the whole thing. And, and I go in there with a smile on my face every day when, when we do it. We don't do it 25 days in a row. It's a couple of days here and a couple of days there. And um, I was just really flattered to be to be asked to yeah. do it because there are so many great commentators out there. And um, as I say, I'm now in my in my second year doing it with Lee. And we have a lot of laughs. Into yeah, the yeah. I, I just think that is the dream. You know, <laughs> I just have to say that. I just think that is absolutely fantastic. Um, let's move on to talk a little bit about the MLS. I mean, it seems to have grown and exploded, I think, in the last four or five years. Would you agree? No doubt about it. Um, when I compare and contrast with the league I covered in the early years, because that was the other thing I, I omitted to mention earlier, I was actually the... Uh, I had this great title. It was a very romantic title. I was the voice of the revolution for the wow. four years of the, the New England Revolution's existence. <laughs> and um, yeah, every team in the USA here has its own commentary team. And uh, I did all the games on local TV for the New England Revolution. Now, in those days, the league was, um, you know, was not what it is now. That obviously is perfectly understandable. They had to throw it together after the, the World Cup in '94. Uh, it was a tribute to many people that they got it off the ground. But uh, in 1999, it was actually very close to folding. And mm. uh, this has come out since then. So uh, it's a bit of a miracle that it remained in existence. In recent years now, it, it's it's just a much better league. And the standard of play is higher. The American players who play in the league are much better than they were. Uh, and also some big names have appeared in it. I'd never like to judge a league by big names because... Uh, you know, fine, you have a big name, but it's really all about what's on the pitch yeah. from the point of view of this team sport that we all love. But there are many success stories, you know, some of the, the more recent markets to come into the league, Seattle, Portland, mm. uh, Atlanta, you know, they are the ones who've sort of been the torch carriers for MLS, much more so than, than some of the, the, the teams who were around on day one, yeah. know, dare I say it, like the New England Revolution. Yeah. We'll talk, you talked about Atlanta, and I know a, a lot of Aberdeen fans will be interested in listening to this podcast. What do you make of that connection between Aberdeen and Atlanta United? Well, I think it's a fairly logical tie-up when you consider Dave Cormack's role in all of this. I know Dave, I've been in his office, and he's a very enthusiastic fellow, and I think probably the right fit personality-wise for what Aberdeen need in the years ahead. And I remember when I spoke to him, he 
did mention that he was very keen on a tie-up of some sort with Atlanta. At that stage, nobody could have known that it would have been this type of tie-up. But I think we've already seen that there are benefits with John Gallagher uh, going to Aberdeen mm-hmm. from Atlanta United. And there'll be many other such examples, probably in both directions. And I think uh, each club gets out of it something unique. You yeah. know, I think from Aberdeen's point of view, they have access to this phenomenally successful club in a short space of time with some of the, the largest attendances anywhere in the world. Mm. Uh, I mean, that is the truth of the matter with regard to Atlanta United. What Atlanta get is an organic football club that's been around for a while. And, yeah. You know, I thought they, they phrased it very well in their, their marketing brochure, Southern Swagger, Scottish Legends. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Aberdeen have won two European trophies. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a pr- pretty amazing Absolutely. Uh, and I, I was actually on with some of the Atlanta broadcasters when this was announced and you know when you point out just what Aberdeen achieved in 1983 under Alex Ferguson as he was then uh, you know their, their jaws drop because yeah. um, you know to beat Bayern Munich in the quarterfinals of a European uh, tournament and then to overcome Real Madrid in the final that doesn't happen every day of the week yeah so it's um, I think it'll be win-win for both we'll see if it develops any more than this but there's also a financial component with regard to the Atlanta investment in Aberdeen and um, I can't see that it can be anything but good. Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what evolves with that, that is for sure. Let's go a little bit back a little bit to talk a little bit more about the MLS because you mentioned about players making leagues. For me, I thought a real turning point in the the development of the MLS was when David Becker went to LA Galaxy. I'm not sure if you agree with that, but that's my view. Well, I think it helps from the point of view of the projection of MLS. Mm. Um, you know, whether it's, it had a huge impact on the quality of play, the fact that Beckham was there, I'm not sure. That's maybe a different area mm. to explore. But I think there's no doubt that Beckham going there uh, put eyeballs on MLS. Yeah. I think a lot of people who hadn't previously taken much of an interest thought, oh, this could be quite interesting. And the same in the last couple of years was Latan Ibrahimovic. That's you true. Know, Ibrahimovic, obviously, in, in the author of his career, uh, no longer at the very peak of his powers, but could still play, as he demonstrated, and he got people to watch games. Yeah. And I think a league like MLS does need that, and so it will always be the case that these bigger names, usually at the end of their careers, will come in and help out. But I yeah. think what has been encouraging in more recent years has been the trend towards finding players from the Latin American world at a younger age, mm-hmm. so uh, coming to MLS from countries like Costa Rica, from uh, from Mexico, obviously that's the, the best example that you could look for, uh, but other um, Latin American countries too, because that's an important part of the market in the United States, and perhaps that's not something that would be immediately obvious uh, to somebody who's viewing it from afar, but it's very important, and it's something MLS has done very well, is, is make their lead a big part of the scene with regard to Latin American countries and being a natural developmental step yeah. and also a financial step um, to move to MLS. We'll have to see. It certainly has been evolved in the, the last few years anyway, especially with, again, coverage on Sky as well. Absolutely fantastic. Um, Derek, you've had a an amazing commentary career. I was just having a look at your kind of credits today and here. We've mentioned them quite a lot throughout this podcast. What advice would you give to young budding people who are maybe starting out, maybe wanting to show a little bit of ambition going forward? What advice would you give? Well, I get the 
this question quite a lot in the era of social media, and I'm always very happy to reply to anybody who does ask, but here are the main points uh, as I see it. Number one, you have to really love it. And when I say you have to really love it, you have to love broadcasting. You have to love football as well. You have to love the combination of the two, but you have to really enjoy broadcasting. And you have to be prepared to go the extra mile and to work silly hours that you probably can't conceive of. The example I always give is, you know, on a Friday night when your mates are out having a good time, it's the end of the work week, and, you know, in a pub or, you know, shouting loudly, you're going to be at home in your notes, resting your voice and making sure it's right for the next day's broadcast. And rinse and repeat and get used to that because um, it's a great job. It's a magnificent job, but it still is a job that you have to do professionally. Yeah. So you need to train yourself uh, from a very early age um, to be professional. And, and that is one aspect of of being professional and it's the one thing I think that, that again people don't always understand when I'm in Germany and I sometimes tweet about the fact I'm in Germany at a game today about to broadcast say Bayern and Dortmund I'll get people saying all right for some oh yeah you know what a hard job that is and I, I don't reply to people who say that but what I would like to be able to say to them is no you don't understand if you were at Bayern against Dortmund as a fan your experience would be totally different than mine because I'm there to work and yeah. yes I'm there to enjoy the game but the first priority is to get the work right so think of it as your job this is my job but you know I'm a professional in what I do so I want to get it right and that's what you have to think of if you're a young aspiring broadcaster you're not in it just to be a professional fan although you can enjoy it in a way that um would make your friends probably envious but that's not what it's all about it's about doing the best possible job so I would say, first of all, you have to be prepared to work really, really hard. You have to be prepared to get your work on tape. You have to be prepared for rejection because we've all had rejection from multiple people. Yeah. Um, and you're going to get that throughout your career. And uh, you have to be lucky. As I, say, I was very lucky at 19 to have a, a producer who believed in me. I was lucky at, uh, at 50 to have a producer at, at uh, FIFA, at EA Sports, who liked my work as well. And, and uh, offered me the, the, the gig uh, on that front. Uh, you have to always be lucky. But what I have found over the years is work really hard and dedicate yourself to your craft and you get that bit more lucky. So um, the two do go hand in hand. Um, work on your voice. Realize that the voice is the musical instrument. I'm always very interested in how singers protect their voices. And no. I think with commentators it's the same because without the voice, we are nothing, and I'm almost paranoid about losing my voice or, you know, about illness in winter, things like that, because, um, you know, a commentator without a voice is like a, a footballer without a, a right foot, yeah. you know, it, it just, the two don't go hand in hand, and I don't think people always understand that, and if you think it's a, a well-paid, cushy, glamorous number, and that's why you want to go into it think again because for the most part it's not it, absolutely it's, it's a, a great job it, it's something that you know I love every moment of what I do and yeah. that's what you have to feel if you want to get into this um, 
this business and um, you have to, to work harder than you can possibly imagine. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice and if anybody is listening to that and uh, nodding in agreement then that, that's certainly the, the place for you. Um, just a, a comment I had here Derek from a great friend of mine and big follower of this podcast called Alistair McIntosh. I met Derek on a flight from Frankfurt to Aberdeen in August 2016. He's a great guy, he made an impression on me um, and he was so warm and friendly, has a good way with people, not to mention the football that he talks. Very wise guy. And it was, uh, so yeah, I just wanted to give Alistair a bit of a mention on this ah, podcast. So um, That's very nice. But, well, yes, uh, uh, Alistair, those were in the days when we had that non-stop flight from Frankfurt to Aberdeen with Lufthansa. Sadly, it's been discontinued, <laughs> but it was quite handy for me because I would often be in Germany covering a game uh, on a, a Saturday and then I would need to, to get to... Uh, Aberdeen or, or Scotland on a on a Sunday, and that was the best way of doing it. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, Alistair, you had a mention on the podcast, so you better owe me a pint later on, maybe in the festivities. Uh, Derek, one question before we head into my uh, you, my kind of favourite part of the show, which is uh, you pitting your wits against me in my predictions challenge. What's your greatest goal you've seen live? Greatest goal I've seen live. Whether that be in the commentary box or whether that be. You know, a game as a fan or whatever. I think the greatest goal I've ever seen live, I would have to give it to one of my favourite players, Ronaldinho of Barcelona. It was when I was covering Spanish football. And this game was at the Bernabeu. And Barcelona were the better team in those days. They both had their spells where one outdoes the other. But this was the Frank Rijkaard coached uh, mm. Barcelona before, just before Pep Guardiola's time in charge. Yeah. And this was... This tells you everything about the goal. It was Ronaldinho, as I recall, he picked up the ball on the left, beat a couple of players, and then fired at home at the Bernabeu against Barcelona's arch-rivals. Mm. And the Real Madrid fans, to a person, were on their feet applauding. Wow. And I think that said everything about it. And it would be really hard to top that goal from the point of view of one I've commentated on. So, yeah, yeah Ronaldinho, I'm going to say this would have been around 2006, 2007. Yeah. I was trying to remember some of the, the goals that you commentated on when you were on BT Sport. And the one, one that kind of springs to my mind was when Willow Flood scored an absolutely spectacular goal for Aberdeen at Pataudry against Hibbs. It was a, I don't think it was a very good game. I think it finished 1 0. It was about three minutes to go. And he rifles yep. one from 25 yards into the far corner. And out of, it was absolutely out of nothing. And uh, I don't know if you remember the game in question, but uh, that, that yeah, was. The I do remember. I do remember it. It was a Friday night game that mm -hmm. we did at the Tordre Aberdeen Hibs, you're right, and it was not a great match. It looked like it was going to peter out into a nil-nil draw and uh, upstepped Willow and smashed it home, and I think I called it a bolt of lightning. It's yeah. funny how, when I think back to the goals, I usually can remember what I said at the time. Yeah. I think that's what I, I used to characterise that, uh, that, that Willow flood goal. But, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you picked that one up because... Uh, that one obviously stands out, and then the other one probably from Scotland, which stands out, would be the the Dembele goal for Celtic against Rangers yes. in the the League Cup um, semi. And similarly, that was a very late goal. Look as though we were heading for extra time in that game. Yeah, and um, and, and that one uh, is one that uh, that will live long in the memory just for pure drama. Superb, superb. Right, let's move on to my part of the show where I, my guest and I pit my wits against uh, each other in our predictions challenge. Derek, I've won my last seven head-to-heads against guests on this podcast, so you need to try and stop the rot here. 
here. <laughs> so, so let's start. Let's start in Scotland, shall we? Let's start with the games on Saturday. Before we do that, well played to Celtic as we're recording this on uh, Sunday night for winning um, the League Cup um, this afternoon against Rangers 1-0. Fantastic result, Derek, for Celtic fans. Absolutely, as they continue their marvellous run in the League Cup. And uh, I didn't get to see the game, unfortunately, over here mm -hmm. in the USA, but it, it does sound as though it was a cliffhanger and uh, Fraser Forster more than playing his part. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Christopher Julian being the match winner on the day, and we'll, I'll have uh, more uh, analysis on that in uh, an upcoming show later on. Let's, uh, let's move on to the weekend's games starting the 14th of December. I think it's the 14th of December. Uh, Aberdeen against Hamilton at Patodre. Give us a scoreline, Derek. Scoreline, Aberdeen 2, Hamilton Academical 0. I've gone exactly the same when I think Aberdeen will bounce back from what was a really uh, disappointing result against Hibernian on Saturday. Yeah, I didn't necessarily see that coming, but uh, ups and downs for the Dons this season, unfortunately. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of ups and downs, two sides next who are really in a bit of a troublesome form at the moment, Hearts and St Johnston at Tynecastle. Say that Hearts will be given a lift um, going into that one with Daniel Stender um, appointed. I'm going to say Hearts to St Johnston nil. Interesting. Yeah, it was an interesting appointment that one. I don't, I don't know much about. Him. Maybe you know a little bit more about him than I do, Derek. But I'm, I'm going to go for one-one here. Um, two sides that desperately need a result, and I don't think either will get one. So I'm going to go for a score draw. Yeah, but Stendhal is an interesting guy. I watched him play, commentated on him many years ago, striker that he was for Hanover, briefly Hanover manager, then Barnsley. Uh, tends to favour the, the, the gegenpressing approach, as we say, uh, in Germany. So uh, the high press and uh, quite a, uh, an up-tempo kind of style. Yeah, OK, well, we'll certainly keep an eye out for, for that. Uh, next up is Ross County against Kilmarnock in the Highlands. Yeah, Ross County and Kilmarnock. I am going to go... I've always had a soft spot for County. It was one of my favourite places to go. So I say they're going to edge this 2-1. I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to go Kilmarnock to win in the Highlands 2-1. I was, again, quite surprised at how poor Kilmarnock were against Livingston on Saturday. I didn't expect a 3-0 win for the Livy Lions. And I think um, Angelo Alessio will get a response from his men. But, you know, Ross County, great win against Hibs. Obviously not playing on at the weekend. But that may be help them a wee bit. But I'm going to go 2-1 Kilmarnock in this one. Next up is St Mirren against Livingston. St Mirren and Levy, we haven't had a draw so far. This looks like a 1-1 to me. I, I'm going to go for a narrow home win for the Saints. I think they'll be buoyed by the fact that they beat Hamilton at the weekend, which is a massive three points for Jim Goodwin's side. And I think they'll follow that up with a 2-1 win against the Livingston side, who I don't think are going to be in trouble in terms of the uh, battle at the bottom, but maybe need a couple of wins to just be absolutely sure of their status, I think. Um, next up is uh, Motherwell against Rangers, who of course lost the cup final uh, this afternoon. Yeah, uh, and Motherwell of course have had a lot to say for themselves this season. I, Motherwell Rangers of course, whenever I think of that fixture, I think of uh, one of the, the games I covered in Scotland that had real meaning was that playoff between Motherwell and Rangers. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I think uh, obviously it's a very different Rangers nowadays. 
I think Rangers will win this by two goals to one. I'm going to go 3-1 Rangers. I, I do think Rangers will have a little bit more quality and I think they'll be wanting to uh, bounce back from today's uh, disappointment. What have you made of Stephen Sherrard since he's come into Rangers? Well, I think that obviously he's come in and set high standards, uh, which I uh, you know, think most people would have expected that. I think that having Gary McAllister on board with him was a very sensible move. Uh, I say that knowing Gary very well. And, um, you know, obviously he's been able to, to add to the squad in a way that maybe hasn't happened before. But I think that, on the whole, you've got to say, you know, what more could he have done? Okay, you know, we're talking in the aftermath of a final that I haven't seen, but by all accounts, Rangers played very well, especially first half. But, um, no, I think that the, uh, that the grade is, is going to be a very high one for, for Steven Gerrard. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly hope that he uh, continues to, to flourish and who knows, you never know what could, might happen later on in his career. And last up is Celtic against Hibs at Celtic Park. Um, I think that Celtic will win this by three goals to nil. I've gone 3-0 as well. I just think that Celtic uh, will be full of confidence after the result today. And, I, not, and that, as you rightly say, not at their best today in that cup final, but... It's all about just getting the job done and Celtic got the job done. It's another uh, cup in the, the cabinet. I think Neil Lennon's side will kick on from here and I think they'll pick up all three points and I think they'll win 3-0. Let's move into the English Premiership. Let's start with Liverpool because they really have been fantastic this season, Derek, and they're home to Watford on Saturday. Yeah, I'd rather fear for Watford in this game. I mm. watched Liverpool against Bournemouth, and that was really at a canter. And you know, they didn't really have to to play all that well to to dispose of them. And uh, you know, given where Watford are at the moment and Liverpool at home, I think this could very easily be, let's say, four. Let's say. Four, 5-0. Ooh, going for 5. I'm going to go for just the 3 for Liverpool. I'm interested to see how Nigel Pearson gets on in Watford. I know it's a very tough game for him, but I have a sneaky feeling he might do enough to keep them up. I'm just thinking of the time that he did with Leicester before Ranieri came in, and he kept them up. I just wonder if he might just do the same with Watford. But for me, and I don't know if you agree with me with this, but I just think that Liverpool are, you know, this is as close to a slam dunk for the league title at the moment where Liverpool are. They're, they're just flying. Yeah, I would agree with that, and I think the competition is not as great as it was. Manchester City have demonstrated they're not as strong as they were, and um, yeah, I'd, I'd be very surprised if Liverpool don't win the title going away. Yeah. Next up is uh, Burnley against Newcastle. Interesting one, because I'm going to be covering Burnley on Boxing Day for Prime Video, so I'll be watching this one with a lot of interest. Um, this really could go any which way, mm. because... Uh, you know, trying to figure out teams like Burnley and Newcastle uh, is difficult. Um, so I'm probably going to say this will be a draw of the 1-1 variety. Well, that's not going to help my dad, who I was just chatting to before this podcast, who has Newcastle for next week's last man standing. I think he's down to about the last six. And I'm going to go for a win for Burnley in this one to make him even more upset. I'm going to go 1-0 Burnley in that one. <laughs> I'm going to be very popular when he listens to this one back. Next up is Chelsea Bournemouth. <laughs> um, well, Chelsea stumbles against Everton and not at their absolute best, that's for sure. Bournemouth, well, you know, you never quite know what you're going to get from Bournemouth. It could be brilliant, it could be terrible, 
I think Chelsea will get back on the rails and I would expect them to win this pretty pretty conclusively 3-0 I'm going to go 2-0 Chelsea and I do worry for Bournemouth I fully agree they're in 15th they've lost the last 5 games I, I was really surprised at how poor Chelsea played against Everton yesterday but I do, I do agree with you I think the Blues will bounce back and I've been really impressed with Frank Lampard especially with the work he's done considering the transfer ban he's done really well to get players like Abraham and Mount um, in the team playing some great football and I think they'll come out on top 2-0 but this is a sort of game where you know they lost against West Ham a similar sort of feel to this game so you just never know but I agree I just think Chelsea will have enough and I'm going for a 2-0 win there yeah. next up is Leicester against Norwich and Leicester have had a, an amazing season so far under Brendan Rodgers they have and of course everybody in Scotland knows what Brendan Rodgers can bring as manager of a football club and yeah, no signs of Leicester weakening at all. Um, Norwich, not really looking as though they have what it takes to stay in the top line of English football. Mm. So I would expect Leicester to, to win by a pretty handy margin. I'm going to say 4 one. Oh, interesting. I'm going to go 3-0 Leicester. I've been really impressed with them this season. I said at the start of my series that Leicester would get in the top four. I was very um, I was very bold with that prediction, but I felt it was justified, you know, with Rodgers coming in and the fact that they had no European football involvement and all the sort of things that were happening at Spurs and Arsenal and Manchester United. and The players they've got, you know, Madison has been outstanding this season, Tielemans, Vardy. They have, in my opinion, one of the best goalkeepers in the league in Kasper Schmeichel. They have a very solid defence And uh, yeah I just think they'll Beat Norwich reasonably comfortably I want Norwich to stay up because I'm a bit of a soft spot For players like Kenny McLean who have Went there and done okay Team Pukki has been uh, is going to be so crucial For Norwich in terms of if they keep up But I just fancy Leicester and I'm going for them to win 3-0 and of course James Madison who for me Has been outstanding for, for The Foxes this season yep. Next up is Sheffield United and Villa Ooh. This is a tricky Sheffield one, this United one. And Villa. Well, Sheffield United have surprised me in a, in a very good way. I mean, yeah, I definitely. They, they, they play a nice brand of football and a real tribute to Chris Wilder. Aston Villa, again, I'm not really sure that they are going to be able to handle United on this one. Mm. So uh, I am going to go for Sheffield United to win 2 0. Interesting. I, I totally agree with you. I've been really impressed with Chris Wilder and a really good win for them today against Norwich from obviously recording this. I feel Villa have been a little bit unlucky. I was actually just looking at the league table before this match. They're only, they're only just above the drop zone on goal difference and I'm quite surprised they're as low down as that. They've been a little bit unlucky with some decisions, especially with VAR, but I think they'll get a point in this one. I'm going to go 1-1. I'm going to go for John McGinn to get back on the goal scoring trail because he's been a revelation for Villa this season. Next up is Southampton against West Ham, which is the late kickoff on Saturday. Well, I was with West Ham in midweek, and of course they had really built their supporters' hopes up following the win at Stamford Bridge. They really didn't perform that well mm. against Wolves. Um, who to go for on this one? I'm a big believer in Ralph Hasenhutel because I know what he does as a coach, I know his, his methods, I know that uh, not every Southampton fan is a believer at the moment, I'm just not sure I have all that much confidence in West Ham, mm. and I think Southampton will shade this 2-1. 2-1 Southampton, I'm, 
I think this game could be decided on how well West Ham do tomorrow night against Arsenal on the Monday night game. If they get something out of that game, I think they'll get a bit of confidence going into the match with Southampton. So I'm going to sit on the fence and go 1-1. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I completely agree with you about Southampton. They had a, they had a really struggling time. They, they got well beaten by Leicester. And I think everybody looked at that game and thought, oh, Hesson was a shoe in to be the next manager to be sacked. But credit to him. They beat Watford. You know, they've, they've had a couple of really good results. Okay, they lost today against Newcastle. But, you know, there is signs that if they can get people like Danny Ings scoring goals and James Ward-Price, who I think is one of their key players, if they're going to stay up, you know, that, that could be the difference. But West Ham, for me, are just too unpredictable. Um, I think they've done the right decision dropping the goalkeeper Roberto and bringing in David Martin, who I think has been fairly solid. Declan Rice, for me, I think is huge for West Ham this season. Same with a few other players like Felipe Anderson and, and players like that. If they can get those big players firing, they'll start moving back up the league. But I'm going to go for a score draw. I'm going to go 1-1. Yeah. Next up is uh, the team I follow in England, Manchester United, at home to Everton. Um, interesting one. Mm. Uh, obviously, uh, following on from Everton's win against uh, Chelsea, um, but Manchester United—we keep thinking that we figured them out, and then <laughs> they go and do things that go against the grain. Um, I think they will take care of Everton here, and I think they'll do it by a two-nil margin. I've gone exactly two-nil as well. Yeah, what a turnaround for Oli Gunnar Solskjaer last two games because it looked like he was under massive pressure and needing a couple of results to stay in a job. And then what does he do? He goes and beats his predecessor Mourinho and Spurs at Old Trafford, and then goes and beats Man City, their better rivals in the Manchester Derby. Two superb results, and arguably probably the two best results of his career in the Manchester United dugout. But I, and I think they're going to follow that up with a two-nil win. I don't know about you Derek but I feel that Marcus Rashford is so key for United this season both in terms of where they end up this season and also opportunity of potentially doing well in Europe as well No it's been great to see his development, I remember when he first burst onto the scene a few years ago in the Europa League against uh, Michilan and um, yeah no, he, he, is, he is becoming the, the finished article Yeah, next up could be a really interesting game, Wolves against Tottenham yeah, it will be interesting. Uh, Wolves greatly impressed me. Uh, as I say, I saw them on uh, Wednesday uh, in um, in England when I was there, and um, there's just something about them. It's very methodical. He doesn't change his team that much. Uh, they can give just about anybody a game. Absolutely. Spurs, you know, I, I, I tend to think Wolves might win this. Ooh, uh, interesting. Just looking at it, it's just a sort of a gut reaction. Spurs, you know, could beat them. But I think that, um, you know, I, I like what Wolves are doing and, you know, why not another home win at Molyneux? So, um... 1-0. One 1-0 nil. One nil Wolves. I'm going to go for a very entertaining 2-2 draw between these two teams. I, I just am amazed by Wolves this season. Obviously, they have this problem about if you're in Europe and they have that uh, you know that headache of being in Europe and you know, it kind of affects the league form. But Wolves are saying level on points in sixth with Man United a point ahead of Spurs, which is quite phenomenal. And credit to what Nuno, is, Nuno Espirito Santo is doing there. Absolutely fantastic. And I really love... The, the kind of blend of players they have in the team, people like uh, Raul Neve, uh, Neves, people like Raul Jimenez, um, Patricio, a former, well, of course, a European Championship winning goalkeeper as well. They, they really are a, a, a good side to watch. I just think, though, it is Mourinho, it is Spurs. I think he's getting a tune out of people like Dali Ali, who needed a little bit of a confidence boost. They had a really good, solid win yesterday. Hune Son, for me, scored one of the goals of the season at the weekend. 
uh, and I just think it'll be a really good game and I, I, I hope it's live on TV because I want to watch it it's 2-2 two -two I'm going for yeah, no, they, they have been excellent, and uh, obviously they've got one Europa League game left as we speak, but that's a dead rubber. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we shall see. Yeah, and next up is the live, well, the Sunday 4.30 game, which is between Arsenal, who are toiling at the moment, against City, who, you know, aren't exactly on great form themselves. Yeah, I mean, I would like to find a way to, to back Arsenal in this game. Mm. I, I, I've always like going to Arsenal, I like the, the, the feeling at the stadium, I, I don't know, I'm not a supporter or anything like that, but I've always enjoyed going there. Um, uh, City, not as good as they were last season, I think they will nevertheless win this, so uh, City 3-1. I've gone exactly the same school and I've gone for 3-1 Man City. I really worry for Arsenal at the moment and I, and I think they need to find a manager who's going to make them tough to beat again because you know, as, as great a legend as Freddie Lundberg was a player, I'm not sure he's the guy to take Arsenal forward. No, I, I wouldn't have thought. I mean, he is a, he's a fantastic uh, bloke. I've been in his company on a few occasions. He was our guest, actually, mm. about uh, ooh, 10, 11 years ago on, on ESPN in our, our studio in the, here in the United States. And uh, a nicer guy you won't meet, but um, I wouldn't have thought that for the long haul he's the, the guy. I know that uh, some Arsenal fans have been talking about Nuno, the, the Wolves uh, uh, manager who we mentioned earlier there. Yeah. But um, if I were him, I think I'd want to say it will have to. Do you, do you have an idea who might go for that job? Massimiliano Allegri is being linked with it. Obviously, Brendan Rodgers is being linked to it, but he's just signed a new contract at Leicester. Yeah, I, I don't have any insight into it. I mean, I think um, you know Allegri is somebody whose whose name obviously has come up. I mean, there are people out there who are available. Um, somebody like Nico Kovac is available, who was the Bayern coach, mm. and I don't necessarily see him as being a fit with with Arsenal. So it's, um, I think it's. Uh, you know, let's figure it out over the next few weeks. I think that's the approach being taken by the Arsenal board. And in the meantime, it's, it's Freddie who has to hold the fort. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll watch that one with uh, due interest. Now, last up is the game on Monday night between two of the maybe surpriser teams who have done well this season, Crystal Palace and Brighton. Yeah, and of course a derby, um, even though you might not think it should be a Yeah, derby, no, this is the weird one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, no, it is. Um, I haven't gone for too many draws, but this one, even though I often think Palace at home have a bit of a 12th man, and it is, again, one of my favourite venues in England to, to go to for, for watching football, uh, I think they they will draw this one. 1-1 one, one is what I'm going for between Palace and Brighton. 1-1. One, one. I'm I'm, it's funny you mention that about the 12th man, because I'm actually going for a Palace narrow victory here, and I'm going to go 2-1, and that's no shame on Brighton, who I think have done terrifically well under uh, Potter. He's done a fantastic job. Bit of a surprise decision, I think, from my point of view, to see him take that job. But he's done amazingly well. I mean, some of the additions he's brought to that team in Mopé, for example, have been absolutely sensational. But Roy Hodgson, I don't know what it is about him. He's just so evergreen and he gets a tune out of a very... Maybe ordinary is a harsh term, but you know, in, term, in terms of the squad they have, they apart from Zaha, they don't really have any other big key counter players who are going to you know win the game on their own. Zaha can do it, but you know they just have a very solid team. They do, and a lot of that is a tribute to Roy Hodgson, as you mentioned. He's uh, just a, a, a great human being. Uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to be in his company on a couple of occasions and he's curious about so many things, not just football, very worldly man, 
and yeah, I think um, when he was the Fulham manager, I very much enjoyed what he did there. Uh, at the time when I was going to quite a lot of games at Craven Cottage, still mm. living in the area, and yeah, Palace fans know that they're lucky to have him. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that brings to the end uh, the predictions part of my podcast, and at the end of another podcast. This is Campbell's Footballs, the only podcast where bad predictions are cancelled out by good crack. I hope this show is just what the doctor ordered, Derek. It's been an absolute privilege to chat to you this week. Nice to be with you, Grant. And as I said uh, in one of the previous answers, if anyone out there is very serious about trying to, to become a broadcaster, I'm always happy to field questions. Absolutely. And I think that's a fantastic way to end the show. And thanks very much for listening to Campbell's Footballs. I'll be back with more crack soon. Until then, it's bye for now.